the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. It was dark just before dawn as Mary Magdalene made her way back to the tomb. I can imagine all of the thoughts that must have raced through her mind about Jesus, about her whole life, of how it had changed since she had met Jesus. In Luke 8, the second verse, we read that Jesus traveled about from one village and one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, he healed her. Even now, she shuddered when she thought of those days when her whole being was possessed and controlled by the demons. Jesus had changed that, had changed her forever. From that day forward, she had been ready and willing to follow him. She would have done anything for him out of gratitude and out of a thankful heart, out of love. Because after all, she owed him. She owed him her very life. But that was before. Now, after everything that had happened these past several days, now what? Was it only a week ago that they had come into Jerusalem singing and people had been lining the streets to greet him? And then that special night in the quiet and the peace of the upper room when they shared the Passover and feast together. Even then, there had been a joyful feeling. Until, until Jesus started talking about death and betrayal. We didn't understand. Then everything changed and fell apart so fast. Life had been so full, so full of hope. But that was before. Everything had changed. These had been the longest and the most agonizing days of Mary's life. She had just experienced one of the most traumatic events of her life. Her world had been turned upside down in that brief time. She could still remember the news that her beloved friend, her teacher, had been torn from her life by that violent mob, the arrest the beatings, the confusion, and the fear. And then on Friday, she had stood on that hill that was called Golgotha, the one where they took criminals to be executed, but he was not a criminal. Yet there she stood and watched as her friend and teacher died, a horrendous, agonizing, and shameful death. She had loved him because of the way that he had loved her. And she had stayed as close to Jesus as she could. And then she had to let him go. As Mary made her way back to the garden early that morning, it was a far different mood. There were no springs in her step, no songs in her heart. Her heart was heavy, broken. Mary was among the earliest of the followers of Jesus. She was part of a group of women who had traveled with Jesus and his disciples. 
She had witnessed the crucifixion from the foot of the cross, even after all of the male disciples had fled. She stood nearby. And she had followed Joseph, the one that that came from Arimathea, as he gathered up Jesus' body and laid it in a tomb, his tomb. She and the other women had watched as the big, heavy stone had been rolled in front of the entrance, the finality of that thud still echoing in her mind as she came to the garden that next morning. One of the most important elements of a proper Jewish burial is the tamatha, the ritual washing and the dressing of the deceased body, preparing the body for his final rest. Mary was one of the friends, one of the women who had the responsibility, this responsibility for Jesus. But it was so much more complicated than normal because it was the Passover. And according to the same Jewish law that required the careful, that, that, that required the careful preparation of the body would not allow them to touch the dead body on a Sabbath which had begun at sundown the day that Jesus had died. Otherwise, they would be unclean, and they would be removing themselves, and they would not be able to enter into worship, and they would not be able to celebrate the Sabbath. Not that any of them felt like celebrating. If you have ever stood at a graveside of someone that you loved, you know what Mary was feeling. You know that same heaviness, that same sense of numbness and pain and deep, deep sorrow. You know. Life will never be the same. Everything has changed. But Mary has absolutely no idea of the deep, deep meaning of those words. Everything has changed. Life will never be the same for her. As the sun slowly begins to rise on that first day of the week, Mary comes to the tomb to prepare this last act of kindness and love for Jesus. In each of the four Gospels, Mary is included in the resurrection appearances. John shows Mary in a prominent image. Mary becomes the courier. At the beginning of John 20, Mary finds the tomb empty, and even in her confusion, she alone is the bearer of the report that the tomb was empty. Mary is the one who brings the news to Peter and then to the other disciple. And then in verse 10, after the disciples had left, Mary stayed at the tomb. She was still confused. She was blinded by her grief. And she confesses her confusion to the angels that are there. Even as Jesus appears, she cannot recognize him, just as the disciples don't recognize Jesus. It is only when Jesus calls her by name that Mary understands that he has done what he promised. And then in verse 18, For the second time, Mary becomes the courier, the messenger, and witness. 
Mary rushes back to the disciples, back to tell them, to the disciples, to deliver that news. I have seen the Lord. And for the second time, Jesus has breathed into her the gift and the joy of new life. And she knows, she knows that her life will never be the same. Jesus' resurrection has changed everything for Mary. She will forever be the first to announce that Jesus Christ has risen. And today we say, he is risen indeed. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So Thomas is a disciple that pops up a bunch in the Gospels, more than in some of the others. From what's written about him, we learn that Thomas is a very confident guy. He's ready to stick his neck out for Jesus when others are more uncertain. We also learn that he's quick with the questions. He's asking a question others might be more embarrassed to ask. Thomas threw his whole self into Jesus' ministry, but then, well, then Jesus died. See, here's the thing. Thomas was like many of his people. Every Jew hoped and prayed for the day when a Savior, a Messiah, would come and deliver them from out of Rome's occupation and recreate the nation of Israel in all of its former glory. When Thomas chose to follow Jesus, he was saying he thought that Jesus is this kind of a deliverer. But then the hopes and dreams of Thomas were quite literally crucified in front of his very eyes as Jesus is killed on a Roman cross. And Thomas would have felt like he'd been had. So many of us grew up hearing that Thomas's doubt was bad because he doubted God, right? But what would you feel like if something you'd given your whole life to suddenly turned out to be, well, just another deception, empty promises, another conspiracy theory? After how sure he'd been about Jesus, after all the questions he'd somehow still missed the mark because, well, Jesus was dead. He was buried and gone. And especially at this time, being wrong can be costly, even dangerous. I mean, Jesus was being executed as an insurrectionist. So you see what this means? Thomas's doubt isn't actually the problem. It's a sign that he's realized his confidence wasn't in Jesus. It was in his own ideas of who Jesus was. And so Thomas leaves. He wasn't going to hang out around the other disciples and be constantly reminded of his own foolishness. And so when the other ten disciples come to him with this crazy story, saying that they've seen Jesus alive again, everything inside of him rebels against the idea. And yet, there's this little sliver of hope. He doesn't want to fall for that again, but what 
if it could be true. Because the disciples are insistent, like, like really insistent, intensely so. They were so expectant that Jesus was going to show up again that they made sure that Thomas was with them just in case. And for his part, their story about Jesus' appearance makes Thomas curious. But this time is going to be different. He wants proof, just like they say they got. And so sure enough, they're back in the upper room a week later, and sure enough, Jesus shows up. Now, never mind that it was Thomas's expectations, his ideas about Jesus that were all wrong. That doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. When Thomas says he needs to see the scars, Jesus says, okay. There's no scolding. There's no lecture. There's no a tu, Thomas. Just a simple, compassionate plea that Thomas believe his own eyes. It's like Jesus is saying, it's okay, Thomas. I know you feel pretty burned right now, so, so here are my scars. I know that it hurts, and so I'm here. You can still trust me. Again, doubt isn't actually the problem. Doubt is the symptom of his pain. For Thomas, his doubt is the realization that he got it wrong, and that's painful. And when we're in pain, the last thing that we need is intimidation, or condemnation, because neither of those things leads back to trust. This is the moment that changes everything for Thomas. His response of one of overwhelming confidence. My Lord and my God, he exclaimed. Not just the Lord. Not our Lord. My Lord. This is the strongest declaration of faith in the Gospel of John. Thomas experiences the resurrected Jesus, and as a result, Thomas is all in once again. Thomas the doubter, though, became Thomas the missionary. It's not that Thomas left all of his doubts behind. None of us really ever do that. It's that his experience of Jesus gave him the confidence to trust in a risen Savior. See, after this, Thomas lives differently. He didn't hide in an upper room anymore. Far from it. It's Thomas who is credited with starting churches all the way from Jerusalem to India. He was so convinced, so changed by this experience with Jesus that he traveled farther than anyone else to tell this good news. In his hopelessness and in his pain, Jesus came and changed everything. That afternoon, following Mary's joy-filled discovery at the empty tomb, We meet Cleopas, a follower of Jesus, and a companion, likely his wife, also named Mary. They are walking along the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they are the very portrait of dashed hopes. We can see their dashed hopes in their posture. Luke talks about their faces being downcast, and I imagine that their pace was slow and shuffling. Their focus was probably down to the ground instead of ahead to the road. They had heard Mary's announcement that the tomb was empty, but they just couldn't make sense of it. So they were giving up, and they were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving the community of disciples and the common mission they had shared and invested in for three years with Jesus. 
To them, it seemed there was nothing left for them in Jerusalem except grief and pain. And we can hear their dashed hopes in their words. Luke 24 says that as they were walking, Jesus himself came and walked alongside them, but they didn't recognize him. Luke 24 says, Jesus said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? They stopped, their faces downcast, and the one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? Jesus said to them, what things? They said to Jesus, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. Cleopas shares their hope that Jesus would have been the one to free Israel from the pagan occupation of the Romans. This was the hope, the lens that framed their worldview. Through this lens, God would end their suffering and persecution by defeating all their enemies. Through this lens, their purpose was to be this set-apart people removed from the world around them, a return to a nation under God. Through this lens, Jesus' death made him a failed Messiah. It meant that their rescue had not yet come. It meant that they were still a people without a purpose. With this lens, Jesus' resurrection looks more like a cruel joke or a bad rumor. Through this lens, they cannot see any hope. The future is blurry, and it seems better to just give up and check out. I went to the eye doctor last week, and the eye doctor put the machine with the lenses over my eyes and started me out with what I see with my current lenses. And I got all the way down to the bottom of the chart, and for the life of me, there was one letter right in the middle of the line that I could not read as hard as I tried. I joked with the doctor that it actually looked more like a dot than a letter. Well, she changed the lens, and all of a sudden I could see. It wasn't a dot. It was the letter A. And this is exactly what Jesus did for the two disciples walking the road away from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He changed the lens. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through all the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus walked them through the whole big story of the Bible, from creation to the covenant to the prophets, and he helped them see how all these recent events they were discussing were indeed the story of God's redemption of his people. This new lens helps them see that the redemption is not from suffering, but through the suffering of the Messiah for them. He helps them see that God has not failed to rescue them, but has freed them from the power of sin and death. This new lens helps them see that the goal is not a peaceful utopia away from the world, 
but the inheritance of a mission to share this redemption with all the world. And when this new lens clicks into place, suddenly they recognize what it is they are hearing and seeing. Luke says that they, when they reached Emmaus, they invited Jesus to have dinner with them. It says, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? This new lens changed everything for these two disciples. Scripture says that they got up right at that moment and raced back to Jerusalem where they had just left. They hurried back to the other 11 disciples and Jesus' other followers to share this crazy experience. And their incredulous excitement bubbles over as their friends confirm that Jesus had also appeared to Peter. Cleopas and Mary hadn't imagined meeting Jesus on the road. Jesus was alive. His death wasn't a failure, but a fulfillment. Their dashed hopes are more than restored. Their hope is entirely reimagined. Despite circumstances that were still very uncertain, their vision of the future moves from hopeless to hopeful. Filled with new purpose, they stay with their friends. And soon, together, they experience the powerful coming of the Holy Spirit. And they get to witness the first church come to life as 3,000 other people catch new hope as they too experience the reality of the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, the story of Cleopas and Mary is a microcosm of our own stories. If you are a follower of Jesus, it means that at some point your lens was changed. We are all keenly aware that everything in us and our world is not as it should be. We have all experienced the dismay of broken systems, the confusion of hurting relationships, the sorrow of failing bodies, and the disappointment of delayed hopes. But at some point, Our hearts were warmed by an experience of Jesus walking alongside us and by the discovery in scripture of a good God on an epic rescue mission has changed our lens to one of hope. What would be different if you viewed our world and your life through this lens of hope? Friends, the resurrected Jesus changes everything. On September the 2nd, 1945, Japan surrendered and World War II came to an end. There was a great celebration all across America and the world. In the city of Seattle, a young USO hostess and a USO entertainer celebrated the end of the war. And nine months and eight days later, she gave birth to a baby boy, me. I have never known that woman. All I know is that she was a full-blooded Norwegian. I have never known that man. All I know is that he was half Irish, fourth English, and fourth Scottish. Six days after I was born, I was adopted. 
by a young Swedish couple who'd been told they would never be able to have children of their own. They chose me. I didn't choose them. They chose me. They gave me a new name. In fact, two new names. One was unique to me, Craig, and one was shared with them, Carlson. They gave me a place, a house on the north end of Seattle, a home with them. They gave me a way of living. They were both fully devoted followers of Jesus and active members of Seattle First Covenant Church, which I attended with them regularly as a child and a teenager. They made me full membership in their young family, and they shared me with others, including their parents, Oscar and Jenny Carlson, Gust and Hilda Ornberg. And they gave me a dog, whose name was Happy. I was blessed by my adoptive parents, Ted and Adele, and I am grateful for all they did to help shape and direct my life for God and for good. And I was their heir recognized as such at their passing a few years ago. While this story is unique to me, it is my story. I've also come to believe that it is an example of the story that every person who is a Christian has, everyone who is a follower of Jesus. Let, let me explain. In his letter to the young church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes, Before the world was created, God had Christ choose to choose us to live with him and to be his holy and innocent and loving people. God was kind and decided that Christ would choose us to be God's own adopted children. God was very kind to us because of the son he dearly loves, so we should praise God. That amazing word, choose, shows up. God had Christ choose us. God chooses us. We don't choose God. God is the initiator of our relationship, and also God was kind and decided that Christ would choose us to be God's own adopted children. God chooses us to be his adopted children. Later, Paul would write to the young church in Rome in chapter 8, All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back into fear but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With his, this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. You are adopted as his, that is God's children, and we are also heirs. The work of Jesus in this Holy Week changes everything. We've heard from three people whose lives were changed by Jesus. That's not just something that happened back then for them. It's something that still happens. We can be changed today. The story of my adoption is the story of every born-again Christian. God chose me and you. We didn't choose God. God chose us. Oh, we have a choice to respond or not. But God started this choosing thing. God gave me and you a way of living, a lifestyle that loves and forgives, that serves and encourages, that honors God and respects and cares for people. God made me and you full members of his family, sisters and brothers with each other. 
what Jesus did changes everything. We don't earn God's love. It's given. We can't lose God's love. It's forever. God gives us his name and a place and a way. God gives us family, one another. We are heirs of God, gaining life forever with him. So, let us praise him. Let us love him back. Let us care for each other as well as those he yet seeks to be adopted. This is the work of the cross and the resurrection. This is God's doing, and we are blessed. Together, let us help people to know God. Let us help people to be inspired by Jesus. Let us help people become engaged in serving our neighbors both near and far. This is what God's family does. This is living out the resurrection. Amen.